Let's pray together. God, we do uh, love this place. We are grateful to be here. What a gift it is to have a school where your name is lifted up, not only here in the chapel, but also in the classrooms and the labs and the athletic fields and the practice rooms in the dorms. We thank you for the opportunity we have to cheer each other on in this journey of faith. And we're really glad that we don't do this thing alone. We're really glad that this is a team sport. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you continually call us deeper into relationship with each other and with you. We pray today for Hannah as she leads BHT. We're grateful for her leadership. We're grateful for her team. And we pray for Boltines Timmer to become a place where people feel at home, where they feel settled, where they walk into the building and they just have peace because you are there and you meet them. We pray for Michelle and her leadership over Borbenic. We're so grateful that you've called her to this place and we pray you give her what she needs. We pray for her team. We pray for them as they seek to lead Borbenic to be a place where your name is lifted up. And we pray for each of them to become a more devoted disciple of you because of their time serving as RD and RAs. We're grateful for all the leadership opportunities we have on this campus. And we pray, Lord, that you do indeed raise up worship apprentices along with other community life council members and the other leadership roles that need to be filled. There are so many gifted people, God, And so if any of us are sitting there right now thinking, I could never do that, I'm not nearly good enough, will you prompt us? Will you show us where you're inviting us to serve? Thank you that you are a God who believes in us even when we don't believe in ourselves. And we pray, Lord, for this campus. We pray that this is a place where Jesus Christ is Lord over all. And we pray that beyond our campus, too. We pray today for the people of Aurora, Illinois, who are reeling from another shooting. We pray, Lord, for a healing. We pray for strong laws. We pray for violence to decrease and peacemaking to increase. We pray for the Southern Baptist Church. We pray for the Catholic Church. We pray for the Church of Jesus Christ that is reeling for more admissions, for more acknowledgments of sexual abuse. God, we pray for everyone in our community who has been a victim of this. We pray for their healing. We pray for their strength. We pray, Lord, that you allow them to tell their story to at least one other person so they know they don't have to carry this alone. And Lord, whenever we tell a story of pain, we pray that we are believed, that we are loved, that we are valued. And we're so grateful to you that you constantly restore us and you constantly heal us from the wounds all of us have suffered in this life that you are not content to just leave us as we are, but you want to draw us more and more into the life we can have in Jesus Christ. And so we pray, Lord, that as we think and talk tonight about particular sin, and as we talk in the next several weeks about different sins, that you remind us that these are not the things that identify us, but that we are identified in you 
that we have been baptized into your name, that we have been fed at your table, that we are your children, and that your grace is enough for us all. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, as we open your word now, that you will open us up to look at our lives and to see where we are dying and where you, Jesus, long to bring us to life. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So last week, as you know, we talked about Sabbath. And one of the tools that we used to understand Sabbath a little bit better was a question and answer from a document called the Heidelberg Catechism. And it says this, what is God's will for you in the fourth commandment? That's remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And the answer is this, first, that the gospel ministry and education for it be maintained, and that especially on the festive day of rest, I diligently attend the assembly of God's people to learn what God's word teaches, to participate in the sacraments, to pray to God publicly, to bring Christian offerings for the poor. Second, that every day of my life I rest from my evil ways, let the Lord work in me through his spirit, and so begin in this life the eternal Sabbath. And it's this second part that's kind of animating how we're thinking and practicing Sabbath from now until Easter. That idea of resting from our evil ways. Thanks, Noah. And to do this, we're going to be thinking about a list of sins called the seven deadly sins, historically, or the seven capital vices. Okay, you can take it off. And an expert on this on our, lives and breathes right here on our campus, uh, Professor Rebecca DeYoung. If you want to read more about it, she has an awesome book called Glittering Vices. Shout out to Rebecca DeYoung, who is awesome, and you should all take her. And Rebecca reminds us that this is a list that started most likely around the fourth century when the people were first kind of wandering out to figure out how to follow Jesus like all in. Desert fathers and mothers, hermits, monks, nuns, trying to figure out how do we do this? How do we go all in if we want to follow Jesus? And they started to realize that there were particular challenges that all of them had. No matter who they were, no matter where they came from. And so they came up with a list and said, you've got to pay attention to these things if you're going to go all in. And the idea is if you take a look at these seven capital vices or these seven deadly sins, and you're, you're thinking about those, you're going to cover all the sins. Like, they all have their roots in this particular list. Pride, envy, anger, sloth, greed, gluttony, lust or as my seminary professor taught me, peace-ogle. Really easy way to remember it. Pride, envy, anger, sloth, greed, gluttony, lust, peace-ogle. And so we're going to be looking at these sins, at the practice of sin, from now until Easter. So we're just a, a short way away from Lent, and this will be how we think about things. And we'll be looking at uh, different texts along the way that have to do uh, with a particular sins, but there's going to be one passage that kind of frames everything. So I invite you to turn to Ephesians 2. Page 949, the black books around you are the Bibles. 
Page 949, Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, we'll be reading verses 1 through 10. You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath, like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what God has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. So this is the framing text. This is the text through which we look at our sins. We don't dwell on our sin, we dwell on the grace of God. And we'll talk more about that later. So tonight, we're thinking about the sin of gluttony. Gluttony. Now, some of you know that 13 years ago, I was diagnosed with celiac disease, which means that my body cannot process a protein that's found in wheat, barley, and rye. Now, 13 years ago, when I was diagnosed with this, It was very hard to find gluten-free food, like very hard. And the only places that had gluten-free food were health food stores, where the food was very expensive and tasted awful. (laughs) And so I began a practice 11, 12, 13 years ago that when I found something that was gluten-free, reasonably placed, and tasted good, I wouldn't just buy one, I would buy three or five, or a case, because I didn't know when I would find good food like that again. And I had kind of this scarcity model of gluten-free living. And now, as you know, you can find gluten-free food just about everywhere. You can go to restaurants and say, do you have a gluten-free menu? And they won't look at you like you have three heads. They'll actually hand you a different menu. (laughs) However, The habits that I developed those years ago are still the habits that I have today. So like when Creative Dining puts out like a coffee and pastries kind of thing, and they've got like the gluten-free cookies like in the cellophane, the Udi's chocolate chip cookies, it doesn't matter if I need a cookie. It doesn't matter if I want a cookie. I take a cookie. (laughs) And I don't eat the cookie. I take the cookie back to my office and I hide it away. (laughs) Because I like to know that, you know, I've I've got it in in case I need it. Even though I could go into the dining hall at any time that the dining hall is open and walk over to the secret gluten-free stash of yumminess 
and get one of those cookies. It doesn't matter. I really like knowing that I've got one tucked away in my office. That's gluttony. Hoarding food that I don't really need and don't really want, that's a form of gluttony. Now, the form that most of us think about is overeating, that gluttons are people who overeat, gluttons are people who overdrink. We think we can spot them. We think we can recognize people who may have a problem with gluttony. But can we? Maybe we've had a hard day, you know, one of those kind of days. And we go home, and we open up the fridge, and what do we want to eat? If we have had a very stressful day, do we want salad? No, we do not. (laughs) What do we want? Yes, all of you know your thing. All of you know your comfort food. We actually have a phrase for it, comfort food, right? Everybody's got a comfort food. It may be a comfort drink. Everybody knows what you want to have. Someone dumps you, again, not a salad. No, you want ice cream, you want chocolate, you want very large gooey pastries, right? This is what you want. Comfort food. Or maybe you know somebody who's very, very fussy about what they eat. Like, they only drink a particular brand of water. Like that level of fussy. You know, and their food can't touch each other, and they've got particular things that they do when they eat, and they're very fussy about their food. Or maybe you know somebody who only eats some things and doesn't eat the other things, and that's not enough, but they want to make it very clear that you know the things that they eat and they do not eat. And that's not even enough. It's when you eat the things that they don't eat, then they do this. You eat that? I would never eat that. (laughs) Or maybe it's holiday time and your family has a holiday tradition. Grandma makes the pies. Grandma always makes the pies. She always brings the pies. It's a big deal. We say, thank you, Grandma, for the pies. The pies are awesome. Love the pies. Big thing. But this year, there's a new grandchild-in-law who loves to bake. He has no idea about Grandma and the pies, and so he brings pies. Hey, on the plus side, plenty of pie. On the con side, Grandma's not so happy. Why didn't anybody tell him that I make the pies? Why didn't anybody tell him that I make the pies? Like, this is my thing. This is what I do. This is my domain. This is my house. This is where I live. This is what I do. She may never say it, but you will all know it. (laughs) Or maybe life's out of control, and there's a lot of uncertainty. And you realize that there's one thing you can control, and that's how much you eat or don't eat. And so you you start kind of slow. You start some good self-control, and then it becomes a little more and a little more, and somebody says, wow, are you losing weight? 
are you okay? And you go home for break and your mom says, oh, honey, honey, are you all right? You don't look good. You're, you're too thin. And maybe your coach says to you, look, you've got to take in more. You are going to underperform all season because you're not eating enough. But you don't care because this is how you have control. Think you can always spot the glutton? Whenever we use food for something other than the purpose for which God intended it, we're thinking and living and acting in a gluttonous way. Somebody asked me this week, like, is gluttony a first world problem? And I think in lots of ways it is. You have to have a lot of food to be super fussy about food. You have to have a lot of food to say you're not going to eat the food and be fine or eat too much food, right? I mean, our national holiday of Thanksgiving is essentially like, you know, America's festival of gluttony. But I also know people who've had very little food who are also very fussy about their food. So while it leans toward being a first world problem, it's not exclusively that. So we've got a complicated relationship with food. I think we can all own that. I think we can understand that. We as a nation, we as a society, we as individual people, we have complicated relationships with food. Okay. But why exactly is this a sin? And why exactly is this a deadly sin? I mean, why does this one make the list? Well, to understand that, we need to go back to the beginning. We need to go back to when food first started. So we're going to look at a passage from Genesis. This is the very beginning. God says, See, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's upon the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And then after the flood, this is what he says. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you shall rest on every animal of the earth and on every bird of the air and on everything that creeps on the ground and on all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And just as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So that's the origin of food. That's how food started. It's a gift from God to us for our flourishing, for our being fruitful and multiplying, for us to have good, great lives. You see, God loves our bodies and he wants them well fed. And he gives this to us as a delight, like go, eat the things, eat all the things. Food, in its original purpose, is to remind us that God provides, 
that God is the giver, that God is the one who takes care of us. That's the purpose of food. It's to praise God and to keep us alive. That's what it's supposed to do. Praise God, keep us alive. So when we break open the bag of Doritos and we're just mindlessly eating them while we are watching the 27th episode of Friends in a row, maybe a little bit off God's intended purpose for food. Now it's easy to get stuck, right? It's easy for us to think of the ways in which we have problems with food. And for some of us, this has been a lifelong thing, and I want to thank you for being in the room and staying in the room. Because I know that even talking about this for some of you is just like you have a pit in your stomach the whole time. So I just want to say, you're here, you are loved. Hang in there. Stay with me. Because what's really easy to do is to move from guilt to shame. You see, guilt says, I have occasionally in my life committed acts of gluttony. I have, I have done this, I have occasionally acted in gluttonous ways. That's guilt. We all got guilt. Shame says, I am a glutton. This is my identity. This is who I am. This has been my burden my whole life. I will never be anything but a glutton. And that's why we use this passage from Ephesians to frame our conversations about this. Because God says, no, you are not a glutton. You are somebody who occasionally commits gluttonous acts. And by the way, you were dead. You were these things. You're not that anymore. You were dead. Now you are alive in Christ. I don't see you like that, God says. I don't see you like that at all. When I look at you, I see somebody that I love who is precious to me. That's who I see. And the shame and the guilt are taken away by the love of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, the enemy is a big fan of us thinking too much, acting too much, living too much on food. He's a big fan of that. Because anytime we've got something on the throne other than God, Satan's happy. When I squirrel away the cookie in my office, why do I do that? Because I like cookies? Well, yeah, okay. But mostly because I like the security. I like the certainty. I like the comfort of knowing that when I need it, this cookie will be there for me. Do you see what I put on the throne? A cookie! Do you see what we have put on the throne so often? Our comfort food, our power about food, our self-validation that we get from food, from eating, from not eating. We put it on the throne. And the enemy says, works for me. Jesus says, not so fast. Jesus comes to us and he says, you were dead. That was on the throne. Let's just, let's just take that off the throne and let's put me on the throne. 
And how about in times of stress and in times of trouble? Or when you are seeking security or certainty, you don't reach for Ben and Jerry. You reach for Jesus. French fries, not a fruit of the Spirit. (laughs) Beer did not die for you. Let's just be clear about this now. It sounds silly, but that's actually how we treat some of these things. Like, I could get my comfort from this, and then I will be fine, because I won't have to feel my feelings. And Jesus says, hey, you know what? You can feel your feelings and still be okay. Hey, you know what? I can give you comfort that doesn't run out at the end of the bag. You know what? I can give you certainty that's beyond a cookie hidden away in your desk. I can do that for you. And not only can I do that for you, I want to do that for you. I want to move you from death to life. That's what I want to do, and I can do that with you. We can take food off the throne, and we can put Jesus back on it. That's what he invites us to do. So what does that actually look like? What does it, I mean, okay, we all have to eat. Something we're all going to do, probably after we leave here, probably maybe even in the basement. So what do we do differently if Jesus is on the throne and food is off the throne? Well, when we sit down to eat, or when we open up the box of cookies, the first thing we do is say, thank you, God. That's the first thing. Now, I don't know if any of you who've gone downstairs for the cookies following worship have ever taken the cookie and said, thank you, God. Maybe not. But we've probably grown up in traditions, if you grew up in a Christian home, where you said, thank you, God, before you ate, right? Something many of us grew up doing. But how often don't we, in that moment, like we have our food, we sit down, we're like, we got to pray. Okay. (laughs) Right? It's like, I'm here, thanks, all right, okay, go. What if, just in the moment, we said, thank you, God, Thank you, God, for whoever figured out that if you took sugar and you put it with cacao, bam, like, woo, thank you for chocolate, yes. Whoever figured out if you took wheat and eggs and baking soda, I don't know, you stir it together and you put it in an oven, like, it turned into something else. Like, can we just say thank you, God, for whoever figured out an artichoke was actually edible? Thank you, God, for the first person to look at a lobster and go, I could eat that. (laughs) Thank you, God, for the people who figure this stuff out. Right? And once you move off campus, for those of you who are off campus, you realize the gift of the dining hall, do you not? Right? Yes, yes. You, You get out on your own, you're like, finally, I can make my own food. Wait, that means I have to buy the food? and then cook the food, and then clean up after eating the food, this is way too much work, right? I will never complain about the comments again. So can we say thank you? And if you're on the comments and you're eating in the lines, you're going through Johnny's, say thank you to the people who work there. 
Like there are people who are there who are making food for us. Let's, let's be grateful to them. And let's thank God that for most of us, most of the time, we have enough food. And we're not going to take it for granted anymore. And we're going to say thank you. Thank you, God, for this cookie. Thank you, God, for the people who invented curry. Thank you, God. And we're going to slow down. I don't know about you, I'm a very fast eater. Paul and I were at a conference. We ate like three meals together. I was done before him every time. Very fast eater. It's like, what is with me? Like, do I have somewhere to go? No. Slow down, chew your food, appreciate your food, pay attention to your food. And paying attention will help you to ask big questions like, what am I eating? (laughs) What actually is on a Dorito? Let's just look at that. Let's think about that. (laughs) What am I eating right now? And then the deeper question, why am I eating it? Am I eating it because I'm hungry? and it's good for me, and I'm going to praise God, my body's going to flourish, or am I eating it because I'm bored, and it's here, or I'm feeling depressed, or angry? Why am I eating it? Those are things all of us can do. All of us can do those things. It's just little baby steps towards saying, I'm taking food off the throne, I'm putting Jesus back on it. And then the saints who've gone before us encourage us around the sin of gluttony to think about two additional practices. One of them is fasting, not surprisingly, but the other one is feasting. Now, fasting, the saints will tell us, is a time when you set food aside so that you can focus on what you're actually hungry for. And when you set food aside, every time you're hungry, you have to kind of ask yourself, like, am I actually hungry? And what am I hungry deeply for? Am I hungry for certainty or confidence? Am I hungry for friendship? And am I actually hungry for success? What am I actually hungry for? Now, for some of you, Fasting would be the absolute worst thing to do. That's between you and God. You know it. Fasting would be like a backward step in your healing journey. So that's, be really clear, it's not for everybody. But if you're interested in thinking about fasting, here are a couple things that you could do. One of them is you could say, I'm only going to meet for a week. I'm only going to eat at mealtimes. No snacks in between and no seconds. That's kind of baby step fast, like relatively easy fast. Or you say, this week, I'm not going to eat anything with sugar. I'm just going to like cut out all the desserts, cut out all the sweets. I'm just going to set those aside for a week. And maybe if you're, you want to try going a little bit farther, you could say, I'm going to do a 12-hour fast, like from 7 in the morning until 7 at night, and I'm only going to have clear liquids. That's a really good, like, first step. And if you want to do more than that, Richard Foster in his book, Celebration of Discipline, has a great chapter on fasting. And if you need it, um, I've got it. All that, we, all, we all have it. Um, so 
feel free to ask us and we can send you a copy of that chapter if you're interested. But fasting is to be able to say, there are things more important in my life than food. And I need to figure out what they are. Because food can often mask pain and it can mask joy. And getting it out of the way, we say, all right, God, what do we have to work on here? And then feasting. It may seem counterintuitive in a talk on gluttony to say, you know, y'all should feast more. (laughs) But for some of us, feasting is exactly the spiritual discipline we should do because we do eat mindlessly and we eat without thinking and we eat fast and maybe we don't eat enough. If you've been uh, doing the Sabbath practices study, you know that we've done ceasing, resting, embracing, and the last week is feasting. That on Sabbath, we feast, we celebrate what God has done. So feasting is indeed a discipline to say, I can have joy in my food. Appropriate, God-praising, body-blessing joy in my food. Food doesn't have to be loaded down with all the baggage. I can just enjoy it because God gave it to me. And when you have images of the kingdom of God in Scripture again and again and again, what we are given is the image of a feast, the image of a party, the image of people coming together and being satisfied. And so when we feast and we are satisfied, it is a reminder of what is yet to come in the new heavens and the new earth when all of us in all of our ways will be fully satisfied in Jesus Christ. And it's not a coincidence that one of the sacraments that we practice involves coming forward and eating and drinking. Because it is a foretaste of what is yet to come. When everything else that we have put on the throne has been cleared off and Jesus Christ sits there, King of kings and Lord of lords, and we with every tongue, tribe, and nation are gathered together and we are eating food from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And the thing that you know from your childhood, the thing that you enjoy, the thing that brings you pleasure in that moment will be there and you will be delighted to pass it across the table because you will be satisfied. That's the invitation we're given. That we were dead in our trespasses, but now we are made alive together in Christ. So what does it look like for followers of Jesus to be alive around food? Jesus invites us to be alive. In just a minute, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to move into a time of confession, a time where we get to say, I have in my life committed glutinous acts. But we're not going to get stuck there because confession moves. We confess and then we move into remembering what Christ has done for us and being assured that we are loved and forgiven. So don't get stuck. Keep moving from death to life.
Let's pray together. God, thank you for the gift of food. Thank you that for many of us, food has marked memories and festive times. It's a reminder of our own culture, our own countries, our own places. We're so grateful that you give us food. And we pray that we do not take it for granted. We pray that we slow down. We pray that we pay attention. And God, if there are folks here who would be helped by fasting, then Spirit, prompt them on how to do that and how to do it well. And if there are people here who would be encouraged and blessed by feasting, then Holy Spirit, prompt them on how to do that. And remind us, too, that these are disciplines that we can practice together. So thank you, Jesus, that you move us from death to life and that you want to be on the throne. And so as we move into this confession time, we pray that you are with us and remind us that as by your grace, we have been saved. In your name we pray, amen.